Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to USA Football's Coach and Coordinator Podcast, where top football coaches from around the country share their stories, philosophies, concepts, and strategies to help you get better on and off the field. Now, here's your host, Keith Grabowski. We face a lot of unknowns right now in the high school football world, in the college football world, as to what's going to happen to this season. And uh, living with it right at home with three high school football players, I know there's a a lot of anxiety over what's going on. And um, this definitely affects these players, these young players, these student athletes, um, emotionally and, and mentally. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. So joining me on the podcast, we have Dr. Mark Ayogi, who is the Director of Sport and Performance Psychology at the University of Denver, and Dr. Brian Garrity, Director of Sports Coaching at the University of Denver. Uh, Mark, uh, first of all, it's, it's great to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and Brian, as always, it's great to have you back. Yeah, sorry to be a regular, but glad to, glad to be here, and I'm glad we uh, were able to get Mark. I mean, a living, breathing, you know, real-life sports psychologist, uh, and I think he's got a a great perspective and have great insight, particularly on this topic. Yeah, and Mark, for our audience here, I guess it, it'd be useful if we could just get a little background on the work you're currently doing and some of the things you've done here in your career. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so you kind of mentioned on the academic side, I work at the University of Denver, and we have a master's program in sport performance psychology there. So that's primarily a teaching and a training position. Uh, I actually don't work with the, the university athletes. We have a sports psychologist in the athletic department there as well. And then I also have a practice, which is where I do my consulting, and and that's primarily been in the NFL for the past five years, and then also with some corporate clients. And so, guys, as as we look at this, and I guess starting on that that premise that we know this is not unique to my household with with uh, our you know our football athletes here, two of them being seniors, and uh, some of the anxiety that comes along with right now, at least for. Um, for these guys in Ohio, some of the unknown, and I know a lot of states are still trying to figure it out. I know you guys in Colorado just pushed things to spring, but uh, whether it's uh, things have been pushed back or um, they're not quite sure what's going to happen, I think we're looking at maybe helping our coaches understand some things and maybe provide them some guidance on how they might be able to help their uh, their athletes through this time. And, you know, uh, for a lot of these guys, the the hope when the shutdown hit was, well, we're going to get you guys back out on the field in the spring. And I know guys did just a tremendous job. Uh, coaches we've had on here, um, staying connected with their players uh, virtually, uh, being able to not just talk football with them, but talk about life, talk about their goals. And as with any football player, everything always points to the fall, right? You, you get excited about that. It's, it is football's a, you know, a year-round work for a lot of these guys. Uh, and then it's taken away. So uh, my, my first question, I guess, is just in, in general terms, when the season gets canceled, how should coaches go about, I guess, handling overall the the psyche of the team when um, either it's pushed off or it's taken away? Um, I think we've talked about this in a way before, too. I think, you know, framing this thing as always an opportunity for, you know, learning, growth, exploration. You know, the idea of a transition not happening um, or that, you know, you have a barrier, uh, something something unexpected comes up. You know, one of the features that coaches use about sport and why they love, te- you know, using sport as a, as a mechanism to teach skills is to help people overcome these things. So it's an opportunity to kind of look at it like that. 
um, and then having that in your training plan is, is what we've talked about before. I think Keith, that, you know, a lot of these things, we leave it to chance, uh, except for, you know, tactical decisions or, you know, technical progressions, skill progressions, but again, include something like this in your overall planning and go back to, uh, if you want to call it sports psych or uh, the mental side of the game and start looking at, you know, January through December and, and plan for these types of things and transitions. And just like a lot of high school coaches would develop lesson plans for the classroom, develop out a lesson plan uh, that can take advantage of these type of uh, transitions that are, that are going to occur. Dr. Aoki, with some of the things that Robert Redfield has said here, that he's become more concerned about mental health issues with high school age uh, students than, than he is, uh, you know, the dangers of COVID right now. And this isn't necessarily an argument to get into one thing or the other, but to address that issue here, um, the, the mental issues that might go along with it, you know, what, I guess, are some of the things we can expect these, these young people to be going through, especially when you think of athletes. You know, athletes are hi- highly so- social. You know, you don't necessarily see these guys um, always hold up on their own all the time, social distance, whatever you might call it. I mean, there is that sport, you know, aspect of sport where there is a lot of social interaction. So I guess in, in terms of what Dr. Redfield is saying, you know, what, what are things I guess we can expect maybe to address at least with uh, maybe a, a portion of our athlete population. Yeah, and if it's all right, if I can digress for a minute sure. and, and uh, pro- provide a little background for what I'm going to say. The, my, my training in sports psychology, my mentor actually was uh, a coach, uh, Coach Rick McGuire at the University of Missouri. He was the head track and field coach for 30-some-odd years and also a sports psychology consultant. And so he talks about the value of the role of the coach, and that's obviously the technical, tactical advisor on the field but beyond that it's the teacher it's the educator it's the spiritual advisor it's the problem solver it's the mentor it's the role model you know it's such a multifaceted role and such a meaningful role in the lives of so many young people and so you know a big picture lens on what the role of coach entails and then also a big picture lens on the role of sport where sport is presumed to be this wonderful training ground for all these virtues and character strengths that we hope that our, our young people develop. But the reality is sport is a value neutral endeavor that children just happen to want to participate in. And so the values that are taught through sport are a reflection of what the coach introduces into the environment. So, so those two big picture lens lenses really inform a lot of the ways that I think about sport and the, and the way that I think about the role of the coach and so completely agree with what Brian said that, you know, whether or not football happens this year, the roles of the coaches, you know, what one role, that narrow role of the technical tactical person on the field, you know, that one maybe shifts or changes or, or, you know, in some people's mind, maybe even goes away a little bit, but all those other roles are magnified and intensified. And, you know, that, you know, Brian very, very well articulated how coaches can contribute to, um, skill development still, regardless of whether there's football season or not, um, which, which leads into your question about uh, mental health and the social aspects of being an athlete, uh, being a football player. Obviously, the brotherhood is a, is a key part of um, both why people are drawn to that sport as well as what oftentimes allows them to thrive in that sport. So um, we know that from a psychological perspective, we know that uh, even prior to covid there was what's being called a, or what's been called a loneliness epidemic. And that can produce maybe the wrong image in people's minds where we think of loneliness as isolation. Uh, But the reality is what most people are experiencing now and why why they're calling it a loneliness epidemic is that they're surrounded by people, but they're not connected. And so they have this experience of loneliness, even in the midst of crowds of people. So, you know, like I said, that was something that was happening pre-COVID, and we can only presume, you know, we don't have data yet, we can only presume that that's gotten worse since COVID, COVID um, has, has uh, you know, affected us all. So, um, you know, my, you know, strong encouragement would be for coaches to, again, whether there's a season or not, to embrace all those multidimensional roles of being a coach and still you know, view their team, their players in a lens through which they're going to develop these skills. And, you know, if team culture and communication and leadership and those things were the values that you wanted to put in your environment as a coach, and I forgot to mention the phrase that 
Coach McGuire, my mentor, talked about, he said, coaches are environmental engineers. They're creating the environment through which athletes experience sport and therefore experience a significant part of their lives and their development. So, you know, using those environmental engineering skills to whether, whether the football field is an option or not, continue to put those same values into the environment and offer their athletes opportunities to learn those skills. So, you know, whether it's having a virtual team dinner or, you know, basically, you know, adapting all of the same techniques that they might have used to develop team culture, develop communication, to develop the brotherhood through the medium of football, now figuring out a way to do that through the mediums that are available, whether that's Zoom or whether that's, you know, having a socially distanced party or whatever the case may be. Keith, can I jump in and just add one thing I think, you know, that Mark Mark brings up and, and what I think about, too, with coaching and the more robust roles and outcomes that we're touching on here and that Mark identified is that we've got to be careful about role over-identification. And, and what that means is that being a football player, and right now I play football, that you can tend to over-identify with just being an, an athlete, just being a football player, and that becomes your everything. And that sort of thing, coaches often perpetuate that, right? They want total commitment, you know, year round, you know, you've got to be locked in and you're right. We use all these languages to, to treat, especially youth athletes, then like professionals. And for, for both groups, for everybody, it can be a problem because like, you're never just an athlete. You're also, you know, a, a scholar, a student, you know, a worker, a brother, a sister, you know, the different roles that we all play. And I saw this too in coaching that too often uh, some athletes then that have this over-identification uh, have trouble with transitions or trouble appreciating their own different identities that they possess at any one time. Yeah, you you and I talked about that at length in, in one of our uh, smart coaching series. We were talking about athlete transitions and um, when these guys spend you know, their four years being just so keyed in on, I'm a football player, I'm a football player, and then that's gone, right? Maybe they don't go on to play college football, that there is that trouble adjusting, or, or sometimes it's just season to season. I know I always had trouble as a coach, you know, when the season ended and, and just stepping away from it, uh, you know, you, you get into uh, just that routine. And, you know, so you feel some of that, you, you feel some of, of that just being down a little bit because of it. But I think, you know, as we look at how this is affecting student athletes, and again, just giving uh, some examples from, from kids I know, and I'll take you know, my son just finished his baseball season and wants to play college baseball. He's, he's got a few Division two offers, and he's upset. He, he thinks he should have the opportunity to do more, but coaches didn't get to see him, you know, so it's, it's been dealing with him with that a little bit. But, you know, there's a lot of guys he's played with who are really good baseball players who don't have that opportunity because of that. There's also, as I look at and I, I hear one of the things from coaches, and again, you know, one of one of our seniors here is kind of affecting him as well. Is there's there were a lot of coaches, um, you know, early on in the recruiting process, kind of before the stuff hit, was like, yeah, we you know really like you, we want to see your f- senior film. Well, the reality of it is, there's not going to be senior film. So a lot of these guys, again, that some of that anxiety kicks in, especially if it, I think it gets worse if you are. Uh, you know, uh, one of those student athletes who has anxiety and has to deal with it anyway. Um, you know, what, what's the approach a, a coach can take, I guess, in, in dealing with some of that? It seems to be something I hear time and time again right now is that idea of, well, these guys are going to lose scholarship opportunities. I guess that idea of opportunity being taken away in general and, and maybe how that affects mental health. Well, you know, there, there is a phrase that, that's called opportunity cost and that it, it it actually refers to a little bit of the opposite of that process, which is that whenever we invest in something, we're choosing not to invest in something else. And so, you know, it, it certainly could be true that one could view this through the perspective of, you know, I've invested all this time and energy and years into football and that's all wasted, um, which, you know, that would, that would certainly be a different flavor on the opportunity cost. Uh, it could also be that as Brian was indicating, this might be an opportunity to explore some other avenues that you haven't had the opportunity to invest in before. And now rather than being pitted against football, now it's like, well, okay, perhaps football is going to take a sidestep and I can pursue this other, other avenue that maybe I'd even forgotten that I was interested in. 
And oh, by the way, I can bring those skills that I developed through football into pursuing that new endeavor and continue to hone them and refine them there. So, you know, if when I get another chance at football, I've continued to build those skills. And, you know, if and when I, you know, if I don't get another chance at football or if this is truly the time of a transition, then, you know, I've begun that process of taking what I've learned from football and applying it in a new direction. Mark, from just a, like an individual standpoint and, and thinking about, you know, an athlete who you might be working with right now and um, dealing with, you know, I think de- depression becomes the other part of this that, that you're going to see. I mean, we talked about some of the anxiety part of it, but um, first of all, for coaches, I guess, being able to maybe identify some of that and, um, you know, a coach isn't going to be able, you know, he's not, he's not trained in those kinds of things, but certainly can start to see some of those signs. But I guess uh, some of those signs and I guess your approach, though, as as a doctor, how you handle it. Yeah. Uh, well, let me start with the signs and then I, I want to put a little uh, framer on that approach piece sure. as well that you asked about. Uh, in terms of signs, you know, the obvious ones would be low mood. Well, let me start by saying this, that, um, you know, we I, I'll, I'll say we meaning stereotypically kind of broader U.S. society, I think have a conception of depression as we're going to know it when we see it, you know, like right. a person's not going to be able to get off the couch. It's going to be around going around crying all day. Or they're not going to be able to get out of their house or like, it's going to be this obvious thing that, Oh my gosh, this person is depressed. When the reality is that, you know, even myself as a psychologist, um, you know, I could run into 10 depressed people throughout the day and never know it. Right. Because they're throughout most of their life, they're functioning. Mm-hmm. They're, they may, you know, they're, they're noticing that they're not feeling the way that they would like to be feeling or whatever. But um, you know, we're so good at, at hiding that and knowing how to socially present ourselves, whether or not we're struggling with a mental health concern, that um, you know, by and large, people around a depressed person or an anxious person would never know that that person was suffering from depression or anxiety. Uh, so, so that's one piece of it is just to recognize that the, well, the experience for the um, person with the depression or anxiety can be very intense. The presentation of it is often very subtle or non-existent um, when you're looking at it through the lens of another person. So um, that leads to the obvious strategy of you got to talk to people. You have to ask how they're doing. And um, so, so things to look for from the outside. Again, it's hard to recognize from the outside looking in without asking those questions to get to the interior experience. But from the outside looking in, what you can look for is a person that you know, doesn't seem to be taking happiness or joy in things that were previously um, enjoyable, um, that maybe is social isolating. Now, obviously, it's going to be hard to identify in the current climate. Um, a person that, you know, maybe is uh, exhibiting a lower energy level or, uh, you, know, you know, again, in current situation, this is going to be hard to recognize. But in an ordinary situation, if the coach is part of uh, the school system, you know, if a person is kind of separating themselves from friends or peers at lunchtime, um, you, you know, it could be eating less or more, sleeping less or more. So any of these kind of biological, physiological changes um, are oftentimes something that's, that something is going on. But again, without asking the question and engaging in the conversation, it's, you're going to have a hard time identifying what's going on. Again, it's subtle. Uh, so and this gets to the second part of your question of, what, what's the approach to dealing with this? So the, the first part, and again, this goes to the environment, right? The environment has to be built in a way that talking about our interior experience, our emotions, our thoughts, our mental state is viewed as a strength rather than as a weakness. And I oftentimes present it to athletes as you tell me, is it, does it take more strength? Because we have this image, right? That strength means bottling it up and pushing it down and pretending it's, it's not there. And so I'll confront athletes with that and I'll say, you tell me, does it take more strength to bottle it up, push it away, pretend it's not there, ignore it, or does it take more strength strength to pull that difficult thing out and examine it and sit with it and experience it and talk at it? And, you know, 99.5% of the people that I pose that question to will say, it's a lot harder to, to pull it out and talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that that becomes a cultural piece that the coach can set up of, Hey, we're going to talk about our stuff. That's going to be a demonstration of our strength, not a, not an admission of weakness. Uh, and then as that culture and the, as that environment 
um, invites those types of conversations, then it becomes the norm just to say, hey, how are you doing today? I mean, really, what's going on? And, and now the response can be, gosh, you know, I'm just feeling this or that day, or my energy is not just where I'd like it to be, or, you know, I got invited to this party and I just didn't feel like going, or, you know, whatever the case may be. But um, the, the psychological term here would be vulnerability, right? And vulnerability is the embodiment of courage. So again, this is an environment where now the courageous thing to do is to talk about these things rather than to bottle them up. Brian, you and I, you know, spent 2018 season just going through every single week and talking about different aspects of things. Sometimes that they're things that aren't in uh, the the normal repertoire of, of what we do, or it's not maybe modeled by some of the programs we go out and learn from, or at least we don't see it. So some of these things don't really get uh, brought into our own our own practice as coaches, right? So in, in thinking of that, and, and uh, you know, Mark called it being an environmental engineer, but, you know, the opportunity, I guess, right now for coaches, knowing that, okay, we got maybe six months now till we go back to it. I got a group of kids who are highly disappointed or frustrated or anxious. Um, what things can we do now as coaches to support mental health in the environments we create, in our practices, in our communication, modeling, et cetera. Yeah. Geez. Uh, so a lot. Um, yeah, right now too, I think one of the things that we can do is model self-care as coaches, you know, and, uh, from physical exercise to, you know, psychological and dealing with the stress and coping and, uh, reflecting on where you're at and, and what's useful, not only to you, but right. What's going to be useful to other people. So coaches can model that sort of thing too and try to exercise themselves and take care of themselves, uh, perhaps pick up other stress and coping uh, activities like meditation, mindfulness, um, you know, reframing your thoughts in some ways about it uh, to, again, see this as just another opportunity to try to grow uh, and and to uh, say, I don't want to say survive long enough, but thrive long enough too that you can start to try to you know, make a better system in place too. Um, you know, I always try to connect the individual practice to their social environment uh, and, and creating those long-term, you know, paths that support people. Uh, the, the other side, I mean, from, from research on athletes and coping and stress, you know, the coach can provide that positive, uh, motivating, uh, caring, and resource-reaching you know, like, and, and that support, like what, again, like Mark said, knowing each athlete, what does each athlete need? Where are they at? How do I understand that information? And then provide that support. You know, most of the athletes don't need coaches right now, you know, yelling, demanding, you know, criticizing athletes and telling them, you know, well, make sure you're eating and, you know, keep eating and working out and these things. I mean, the, the, everybody already knows that probably pretty dang well. Um, but how can you find or provide you know, either workouts or, you know, videos, uh, doing the Zoom calls, text messages. There's a variety of communication mediums, right? There's the, the different apps that you've got for sports uh, and team building. So how can you kind of figure out where each person's at and really be responsive to their needs? And I, I keep thinking about that more and more in, in today's age. And uh, how can I serve other people? and provide them with the resources that they need, not what I want to give them or not the goals that I have for them, but, you know, listening, listening deeply to what they're saying and then trying to, again, provide some of those resources, um, you know, in the best way you can. If I could quickly, I love what Brian just said, and if I could just add one, and you both use this word modeling, which is so critical, particularly for coaches of young athletes. Um, if I could just add one to Brian's list, which would be, that modeling of vulnerability. Um, you know, I think Brian was alluding to um, many coaches view themselves as kind of the positivity or the motivational guy. And there, there's no doubt a place for that. And um, I hope this is different in younger generations of coaches. I know when I was playing and, and in many of the coaches that I see that are, you know, kind of older and from the generation of coaches that I played under, they're, they kind of view anything other than positivity as weakness. And it's like, you know, no matter what, you just grind through it and, and this and that. And what we're under, and, and by the way, that's, that was the fault of psychologists that that mentality took hold. You know, we got the whole uh, self-esteem and positivity movement completely wrong. And what we 
recognize now is a better strategy is to actually acknowledge what's going on. And it doesn't mean indulge in it. It doesn't mean, you know, throw a pity party or anything like that, but it means be realistic about what, where you're at physically, emotionally, mentally, and then work from there. So rather than believing that, you know, if you show up sad or in pain or whatever the case may be, that you need to mask that and push it away with positivity, but you can acknowledge that, Hey, I'm sad today, or I'm whatever angry or whatever the, whatever the case may be. And I can still go about the business of playing football or getting ready to play football or whatever the case may be. But if we don't acknowledge what we're experiencing, then we, then there's the psychological term is this rebound effect where um, through putting things away through suppressing emotions and not acknowledging them, they actually come back stronger and, and usually at the most inopportune time. So uh, just wanted to add that to, to all the wonderful things that Brian said. Yeah. So I, you know, for myself and I'll say it, I don't, again, I, you know, I, I've said before, I don't really care about divulging myself. It's no big, no, no sweat off of my back, but I told him I had a meeting yesterday actually Mark with one of our colleagues, you know, and the first question is right is how you doing? Right? And there's this social response that, okay, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, how you doing? Everything's good. Yeah. And you put on a fake smile. I said, you want the truth? He said, yeah. No, I'm tired. I'm stressed. You know, there's a lot going on right now. And I'm, you know, uncertainty about the fall with COVID and all that and all the extra work with trying to figure out, you know, how the universities are doing things online and helping other colleagues you know, with that kind of stuff. And my kids have been home for forever. And, you know, we're driving each other a little bit nuts, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, just articulating it sometimes like that, you know, is, is a nice thing to do because it relieves a little bit of pressure off me to fake it. Uh, um, and then I can model that sort of thing too. I wanted to ask Mark then with that too, you know, right? Like, okay, so I'm supposed to be vulnerable as really, you know, in this case, really working with, for the most part, pretty masculine football coaches. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, how do I, how do I help? and get over like that, that fear or, or what's that conversation look like? Like, really, I'm going to talk to We're going to talk about our feelings today and, you know, various emotions and how do we process that? And, you know, oh, let's, let's all just have a group hug afterwards. Um, you know, like how do we, how do we start to develop those things? Cause I, right, I think about for our own programs, right? Like how do we train our emotional intelligence and emotional management and provide the break some of those social norms? Well, uh, <laughs> you, you could just point them in the direction of Pete Carroll. He, he, he uh, embodies this stuff pretty well. Yeah. Uh, but if we're talking about the, you know, the 99% of the other coaches out there, it, you know, there's no question that the, the gut reaction of many people when, when you talk about being vulnerable or, or the, and, you know, anything that's quote-unquote soft is that, I mean, just what the word implies, right, that it's going to make them softer and then it's going to bring in that word that – you know, football coaches in particular loathe distraction. Um, but so I would go back to the point that I shared earlier. I wouldn't say it necessarily this way to coaches, but um, uh, but it's the idea of the rebound effect that if we don't acknowledge these things, they're there, right? And if we don't acknowledge them, number one, they're going to affect us in ways that we can't anticipate and we can't manage and plan for. And number two, like I said, that usually happens at the most inopportune times. So when all is peaches and cream and, you know, it's a, a preseason game or it's a middle of the season game that it just feels like it, it's like, let's go out and have fun, then you can probably do that. But as soon as you say, this is the big game or the big opponent, or this is the playoff game, or this really matters to me. Now you've introduced stress into the equation. And all stress means is that something that you care about is on the line. And so anytime we're putting ourselves in a quote unquote big moment, we are by definition introducing stress and what introducing stress to the experience does now is that it doesn't allow us the, uh, the option we'll say to um, keep those other things on lockdown. So, you know, just when we thought that we were over that relationship breakup or just when we thought that we were over the injury that we're coming back from, now you say it's the big moment, now you introduce stress. And now all of a sudden it's like, holy crap, how's that injury going to affect me? Or, oh my gosh, what's my ex going to think about me? Or, you know, th- these things come up at those moments. So by not acknowledging them, yeah, you're, tra- you're training them to be great in, you know, week eight, if we're talking about the NFL, but you're setting them up for failure when you most want them to succeed. You know, that brings, I think, an interesting question here. And thinking about, again, what we do as coaches, there's there's always that build up to the season and you know, a, a good coach understands like in January, you're not going to expend all that, you know, energy there that you want this to build up. You want it to build up to the season. So in a lot of ways, as as we took our players through uh, the spring here and, 
you know, now into the summer and, you know, for a lot of teams, this is pushed off again till next spring. We think, right, at this point, we actually don't even know uh, with the way things have been going that spring might go away too. With that in mind that there's there's not certainly going to be a season, um, maybe in the, in the next 12 months, we just don't know, how, how should we approach that? without, I guess, ramping our players up to be able to get back out on the field and throwing a, a date out there that maybe has been set by our state. Um, you know, I guess, is there a, uh, any kind of, um, is there lack of better words, danger to that approach in, in uh, again, emotionally bringing these guys back and providing that hope for that date and, and then possibly that date going away as well? Well, I'll, I'll talk about, um, you know, what I think one of the one of my favorite things and one of the most important things that I think I talk about with uh, particularly football players and, and football coaches here is the idea of mental flexibility. So we talk a lot about mental strength, right? Or mental toughness is the word that a lot of coaches and, and athletes prefer. Um, but the reality is to be able to play football, um, particularly if you're, you know, anywhere along that um, along that chain. So, you know, if we talk about late high school, college pros, you've developed mental strength. You, you just have to have. Um, but what oftentimes isn't developed is mental flexibility. And if you think of the, about this the same way as you would physiologically, right, that if you are over-indexed on strength and under-indexed on flexibility, you're likely setting yourself up for an injury. Same thing is true with mental capabilities. And so um, while the football culture has kind of this, I would suggest it has an over-indexing on mental strength, uh, very few people talk about, let alone know how to coach, mental flexibility. And mental flexibility is simply the example I give all the time, right, to football coaches is, you know, coaches will talk about, I want the player that will run through the wall for me. Well, that's great. And, you know, there, there certainly is a, a place for that, a role for that in, within football. It's, also, it's also, also useful to have the mental flexibility of the guy that notices, hey, you know, coach, I can run through the wall, but is it all right if I use this door over here? You know, I mean, that, that's mental flexibility, you know, to recognize what's the objective here. And, you know, is there perhaps a different way that we can accomplish that objective? And so, you know, if, if we can introduce the concept of mental flexibility <clears throat> into how to prepare for this season, which is begging for a flexible approach, then again, now you're, you are doubling down on both preparing for the season, but also introducing and refining a skill that will, should they happen to get on the football field, will be invaluable to them there and certainly will be invaluable to them if they have to adapt to not having a season and then, you know, going about the rest of their life and so forth. So, um, you know, I, I would throw out that, that mental flexibility is something to really hone in on in, in the preparation and something to, to develop. And then a corollary to that is, uh, you know, football coaches, I'll say this, and again, I hope this doesn't apply to many in your audience, but they're notorious um, control freaks, right? And micromanagers and football is set up that way, right? We tend to play in, we, you know, coaches dictate as much as they possibly can, as opposed to maybe other sports where there's a little bit more open play and, and players make kind of more decisions on the field. Uh, but I go back to my earlier example of, you know, when the stakes are low, coaches can have a lot more control and influence. When stakes are high, all of a sudden it's more on the players. And so if you haven't trained this flexible approach, and if you haven't in practice, in, in uh, preparation, in early season games throughout the year, if you haven't trained your team to be able to be flexible and adaptive and to basically for you, to, you as the coach to reduce control and to put more of the control in the player's hands throughout the course of the whole season, then at those biggest moments when it truly is in the, in the hands of the players to deliver, they're not going to have the the faith, right? The trained belief and confidence to be able to execute in that time. So, um, you know, this concept of mental flexibility and then the coaches training uh, their athletes in the ability to adapt and respond, I think is both critical right now. And, and I'm sure we could spend a, a whole episode on mental flexibility. There you go, Garrity, probably getting back on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, uh, um, Mark, but <laughs> Mark, 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 I'll tell you real quick. Mark will be the guy on that one too, because I know, I think I know the you know, the theoretical research stuff that he's talking about. I think I know what he's talking about, and the 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 flexibility is really a cool idea too, because more as more of a kind of sociologist, 
I think that the idea, right, that we live in a day and age of, you know, science is trying to predict and control things. Football coaches, like we said, like the whole the foundation of football, right, is fascinating because it was cha- changed from like soccer and rugby to give coaches more control. I mean, that's, that's exactly why we stop. We have a you know, line of scrimmage. We call a play. It's not like soccer and rugby in that regard. Right. Um, so there's so, there's so many things that the coaches oh, – here comes a kid to interrupt the podcast. The, uh, there's so many things that are we, we assume about scientific linearity prediction control that if you recognize the contradictions, and that's the current age that we live in, you know, uh, that we can start to break down some of those barriers that – might inhibit the mental flexibility. I think that Mark's talking about too. Yeah. And from, from a, a practical standpoint, Mark, I guess, again, not necessarily getting, getting deep into the, the details, but maybe some practical examples of what does that look like as we start to, uh, to train that into our players, into our team, that the idea of mental flexibility. Yeah, I, I think it's um, number one introducing the idea of in the in the military. You know, that's gone from a very top-down structure to this idea that troops on the ground oftentimes have the best information, and so they have this concept that's called commander's intent. And what that means is that the commander, or in this case, the coach, sets the intention. Right? They set that we're going to take this hill, or we're going to you know go after this strategic strategic objective, or whatever the intent is then it's up to the troops on the ground to figure out how to accomplish that intent. And of course there's back and forth, but it's empowering and elevating the, the troops on the ground into a position of your information matters as well. And we're going to not only take that into account, but prioritize that in you know, how we're going to uh, implement our plan or, or actually develop our plan to take, to take this objective. So same deal in football, right? This is what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and, whatever it is, win field position or, you know, have get in the short yardage situations on third down or whatever the intent is. Um, the coach sets that intent, but now let's open our ears and, and, you know, allow the players input. And then ultimately what you're doing is empowering them to develop that belief and trust in themselves. So that again, when they're in those critical situations and they're not allowed to have the coach's input or, you know, it's a hurry up situation and the coach has less control or whatever the case may be that these critical moments, um, oftentimes in gender. Now we've trained and prepared our athletes to know that, okay, when, um, uh, coaches set the intent, but we now now have, you know, know how to accomplish the objective and we're going to be able to respond to, uh, the situations in real time as they're happening on the football field, as the defense is changing or as the office is adjusting or whatever the case may be, we're now empowered, trusting and knowing that um, we can approach these situations with, with confidence because we've been, we've been trained and empowered to do that all along. So switching gears here, as we wind down, um, Mark, how do coaches know when to make a referral? If, if they see that athlete either now or maybe down the road, uh, who is struggling and it starts to get beyond, you know, maybe even what the, the coach feels comfortable deal, dealing with, you know, at what point should they uh, make a referral to a doctor? Well, I, I would say if you're thinking that you might consider making a referral, make a referral. Um, you know, it, it's such a low, um, a low bar to set because, again, this goes back to the environment, right? I'm not going to suggest that in the society at large right now, it's a low bar to go, you know, speak to a professor about a potential mental health concern that you have, but hopefully coaches and, and the listeners of this, of this podcast can, you know, begin to, to make a sea change in terms of recognizing that again, um, talking about understanding, recognizing, working with acknowledging what's going on in our psychological, mental, emotional landscapes. It's a strength and it's a skill. Uh, you know, beyond being a strength, it, it is a skill that we can develop to have greater awareness and greater insight. And um, to recognize that these are all performance skills, right? So uh, in my work, I talk about the full spectrum of care. Um, and what that means is from uh, what the general public thinks of as psychology is taking people from some level of dysfunction to some level of normality, whatever that means. Um, so working on that side of the curve, but also working on the curve of taking people that are normal, healthy, healthy functioning individuals and teaching them mental and emotional skills to thrive 
whether that's on this on the sporting field or in the classroom or in the in the boardroom or whatever the case may be. So um, working across that again, the, the physical analogy here is we have athletic trainers that are going to you know try and work on some level of dysfunction and get it back to functioning, and we have strength and conditioning coaches which are going to take functioning athletes and um, try and um, enhance their capabilities. And both of those roles, ATCs and strength and conditioning coaches, are um, going to be focused on prevention. Right? But I would argue that more of the prevention can happen in the weight room than it can in the training room. The same idea here, that by training and developing mental skills, uh, you know, not only can we potentially prevent um, mental health issues from happening, but if mental health issues do arise, as they naturally do, then likely they'll be less severe and um, more readily recovered from. So, uh, you know, again, all the, all the physical analogies apply here. So, you know, just the biggest thing, creating an environment where people can talk about this, where the coach models vulnerability and, and talking about, you know, his or her inner experience and sharing that with the team. You know, if you've spoken with a psychologist or a counselor, I mean, it's your life, right? It's your information. I don't want to tell people what to do with that. But if you're willing to share that with your team, man, that's a source of such strength. And, and again, that environment of um, vulnerability and openness and, and compassion. So um, I don't know if I've, I've answered your question there, just talked around it, but, but those are some ideas. Yeah, definitely. Well, looking at this, this time ahead of us, again, a lot of these coaches have uh, some time on their hands till their season gets going now. And I know these guys are always looking at professional development. And as we said, this is an opportunity to bring something maybe new into our program or enhance what we do and understanding, you know, the, the mental and psychological side of this. Uh, what resources do you guys recommend or is there any books or, or websites our coaches can go to uh, to learn more about this? It's a great question. Um... I don't know how popular it'll be, but the NCAA does have, you know, a, a not bad, uh, you know, uh, mental health resources on their website. If you get on that, they've developed some manuals over the years uh, that are pretty good and have some basic information. Uh, I think checking in with the local, you know, most of the coaches are connected with the local schools and or school counselors or healthcare providers. So I think finding that system in place, you know, that somebody then doesn't fall through the cracks, you know, before you start looking too far outward, um, uh, you know, what's going on in your own place, your own context right now too. Uh, because if an athlete does, you know, let's say if you know, you know, he's taking, you know, some sort of drugs or maybe prescription medicine, medication from somebody, or he's, you know, maybe abusing drugs or alcohol, violent, you know, violent episodes or unsafe, you know, what are the resources just right there in your own town? Uh, perhaps with a social worker as well, um, you know, to check in to see, you know, how, if I if I want to make a referral, who do I know in town that this you know young person could see, uh, you know, is it in the school or is it in their healthcare setting? Uh, so, so finding those types of things I think would be really useful, and that sounds like a good bit of work uh, to help that process from identification to referral, and and that nobody falls through the cracks. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. I'm kind of curious too what what Mark would refer coaches to. I've I've noticed. And I'll stop with this that as an academic too. Now, I don't think we have, and I've asked several people this. There really is no lay book for you know mental health and well being for coaches. It's one of the gaps that I think I've seen in the literature that I've tried to kind of find that doesn't really exist yet. And I I'll laugh and say. You know, the DSM manual is a good read, but, you know, that's that's a joke you know, for anybody that to look at that. Well, I'll, I'll thank Brian again for teaming up here. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, there's a way I was, I was being quiet. Okay, yeah. Well, thank you again, Brian, for teaming me up here because you brought me back to what I had meant to get to in, in my previous answer about making a referral. And... You know, if we if we think about the most effective referrals, they're relationship based, and so building off of what Brian said of the coach having uh, community resources or school resources um, that the coach is familiar with on a personal level, um, not necessarily meaning that they've utilized those services, but they know the provider. And um, I would take it one step further to what Brian said of bringing the provider in and introducing them to the team, so that the first contact with a provider should a, should an athlete need a 
uh, mental health resource, the first contact isn't when they're in some, you know, anxious or depressed or chaotic state. And, you know, it's really hard to you know, meet and interesting relationship with a person for the first time in that condition. So if there's an opportunity to bring in a counselor and it may not end up being the counselor that the person ends up working with, but it's, a, it's a, at least a representative of the profession that the person can relate to and see as kind of a regular human. And again, this is a place where the coach can, you know, kind of make an effort to meet some providers and, you know, find a relationship with one that they think would connect with the players or at least the majority of the players on their team and have that be the first entry point rather than after a person is already experiencing some level of distress. Um, so uh, thanks again, Brian, for, for guiding me back to that. Uh, in terms of, in terms of resources, you know, I'll, I'll uh, send a shout out to, again, my mentor, Rick McGuire, uh, I guess Richard McGuire would be if you're looking for him as an author. Um, and he has a couple of books. One's called coaching mental excellence. Um, and the, the, these are a little bit older books and I'm not sure that they're in, huge print circulation, so they might not be the easiest to find, but I'll just throw them out because they're still really good resources. Uh, so Co Coaching Mental Excellence by it's McGuire, Benakia, and Cook are the three authors on that. And then another one called Focused for Football that's specifically about football and for football coaches. And again, both of these texts are directed at coaches, um, him being a coach himself. Uh, and the Focus for Football text was largely uh, a result of his work with uh, the University of Missouri football team, and uh, I'm going to blank on the head coach's name as I say that, but um, they had a really strong relationship. Uh, for sort of recent text, uh, I imagine um, Brian's familiar with this and probably has put it out there before, but um, Coaching Better Every Season by Wade Gilbert. Um, I found that to be a, a really strong resource. That, and, and I'm saying these in the context, again, of you know thinking about the the strength side of that equation right the strength side of the mental uh that, that continuum of care that i that i referenced earlier that in in building better mental strengths into both yourself as the coach and then delivering those through the coaching system and environment now you're again um, setting your athletes up for um, perhaps preventing a mental health issue or ameliorating a mental health issue should one arise um on more of the um say remedial side or that side of, okay, a mental health issue has occurred. What are some resources for that? Uh, completely agree with, with Brian that there's not a mental health resource that's specifically geared towards coaches. Um, so I would, you know, I'll, I'll just direct to a couple that, that I think are really useful. And um, these also get to the approach that um, I mentioned earlier, where it's really not about positivity. It's about um, acceptance of what's coming up in the emotional landscape and then being able to work with that. And so it's called acceptance and commitment therapy was the original name, um, but it's actually been used in so many environments now that aren't therapeutic. So from sport to prison systems to um, all sorts of different places that they now call it acceptance and commitment training um, because it is more of a training program than it is a therapeutic program, although there are therapeutic effects as a result of the training program. And there's a guy uh, called Russ Harris. So ACT can be, it, it, it can be very uh, sort of academic and technical and sort of intimidating encounter as a layperson. Um, but Russ Harris has translated it into really user-friendly texts. So one that is kind of more about the mental health landscape is called the happiness trap. Um, and that just kind of gives a, a basic overview of what where, where a lot of the roots of mental health issues are in our, in our current society, as well as um, ways through them that are probably going to be different than a lot of people have previously encountered. So the happiness trap for kind of a, a broad mental health overview. And then um, he also has a book, Russ Harris, same author, has a book called The Confidence Gap, which is, um, again, there's really not sports psychology texts that um, are written from an ACT perspective. And the confidence gap is not a sports psychology text per se. It is written for a, a general audience, but obviously confidence is a central component of performance and a, and a key mental skill. And so that, that book is really um, as close to a book written for coaches about act and applying it in a performance setting as you'll find. So happiness trap and confidence gap, both by Russ Harris. Well, guys, I really appreciate both of you. Uh, taking the time here on the podcast to share some of these ideas and insights 
to, to help coaches and uh, their athletes. Dr. Aogi, it was great to meet you here. And again, thank you for your time. Likewise, I appreciate the questions. It was a fun conversation. And Dr. Garrity, as, as always, it was great to talk with you, and I appreciate you setting this up with Dr. Aogi. Yep, glad we can do it. Uh, just throw in one more comment as, as Mark kind of set it up, too. I just want to put a, a shout-out to all of the therapists, mental health providers, counselors, that right there. there's a variety of people out there, and the relationship that those people develop with their clients, you know, in, in this case we're talking really about athletes, we got to be careful not to generalize or label one experience to the whole, right? Just as all football coaches are not the same, right? You might have one good experience with a therapist or a counselor, or you bring somebody on and maybe you heard something that, you know, oh, this person, you know, didn't do a great job or, um, you know, and, and, and you didn't like one thing that they said because it, you know, rubs it the wrong way or you think it's going to lead to a lack of team motivation. So just try to kind of be open to realizing that there's a variety of people out there and, and you know, be a little bit accepting as well too and, and don't generalize to shut the thing down before you can really kind of explore it a little bit further. So thanks again for the timely topic too, Keith. It's, it's nice to be able to do these things when they kind of come up in, in real life. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. Again, you know, in these trying times, we are trying to find topics and subject matter experts who are relevant to some of the things that are going on in today's podcast was an example of that. So I'm greatly appreciative of guys who really are able to jump on here at a moment's notice and uh, be sure to follow those guys on Twitter and and thank them for uh, all they're doing for us. Their Twitter handles are in the show notes. Also linked in the show notes will be some of the podcasts that we talked about with Dr. Garrity. Please check out all we're doing for youth football at fdm.usafootball.com where we explain our football development model And check out all of our techniques and systems for blocking, defeating blocks, and tackling at footballdevelopment.com.